This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium RPGs. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In today's episode, I had the privilege to converse with Karina, a professional game master that works with younger players. We discuss some of her criticisms of 5e as a system, creating meaningful villains for kids' games, and alternative systems that offer their own unique game design insights. To support this podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review on your app of choice and let us know any insights or questions you have about this episode over on the Darkmoor Podcast community Discord. So without further ado, let's get started. So just so our audiences and listeners can get to know you a little bit better, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Karen McCarthy. Um, I currently work at a board and card game store. And the main thing that I do there, I mean, I do all kinds of stuff, but the main thing that I do there is I run uh, Dungeons and Dragons games for kids in the form of after school programs and summer camps. So I was put in touch with you through uh, mutual acquaintance, Jackson from True Sight RPGs. When I talked to Jackson, he also mentioned summer camps and stuff that he ran for kids. And I know that you two work together at the board game store. Just to elaborate on that a little bit, uh, what do these uh, summer camps look like? So summer camps will be the same group of five kids uh, for like Monday through Friday. So we have the same group five days in a row. Uh, it's usually a three-hour session, so three hours a day for, you know, five days a week. We will get everything from children who have never touched a, you know, 20-sided die in their life to the kids who have, you know, read all the books cover to cover a zillion times and they know exactly what they're doing. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of a balancing act of trying to entertain the kids who have seen it all and done it all, while also not alienating the kids who are, like, I'd, what is a, an attack, a saving throw? You want me to throw a save? Like, you know, that kind of thing. So during the summer, it's the same group five days in a row and then a new group the next week. Whereas with the, like during the school year, it's like I have three different groups that I'll meet with once a week. So Tuesdays are one group and I meet with them seven times, seven weeks. And then Wednesdays are a different group, etc. How long do those groups stay together? So is it like, you know, there's one group during the school year and then they disband or are there games that you've been running consistently for a longer period of time? We have a lot of kids that have been with us for a long time, um, but usually the, you know, the campaign or storyline will wrap up. Uh, sometimes I will, you know, sometimes kids want to bring their character in um, multiple, you know, sessions. Uh, so we'll have the same the same character uh, who's, you know, coming back for other adventures. But a lot of the times kids will just want to start fresh, even if it's the same, you know, if it's the same, like five group of kids, um, you know, they'll, we'll break for a week, right? And then they'll come back and they'll just be like, okay, I'm done with that character. That character is, you know, on the shelf. You know, we raised the, the, the jersey up to the rafters and now it's time for an all new, all new character. For the summer camps specifically, going back to that, um, is there a particular level range that you found works best or 
do you advertise what level that the characters are going to be and then kids that get excited by that sign up can you give me an idea of what that looks like we don't ever advertise the level um i usually try and keep it below five um unless it's like a group of you know all five of the kids have done this a million times before because okay we're <laughs> we're gonna get into some of my issues with dungeons and dragons as a system but i think that it can get very clunky and you can get bogged down with the you know the million different options that your character has by the time you get to the higher levels of play so especially for a younger player who is still learning the rules still trying to remember just like how like how to you know complete their turn and take all of their actions in a turn that's why we usually start it pretty low uh usually like level two or three is kind of the sweet spot because that gives the more experienced kids time to you know they they really want to you know, choose their subclass all that good stuff um while it's still you know the kid who is still trying just trying to figure the basics out is not overwhelmed with their choices that sounds perfectly reasonable to me the other nice thing about starting at kind of a higher level i found is when i would try to teach new players at level one there weren't enough hit points to allow them to make mistakes so it's like if you didn't <laughs> optimize your action economy right out of the gate there's a good mm -hmm. chance your character could get dropped to zero very early on in the first combat yeah that's a good point you also just mentioned that you might have issues with dungeons and dragons fifth edition is that the game that you find that you're running the most or do you have like an alternative system that you would recommend that is the only game that we run for you know for paying customers because that's that's the game that people will play in in my experience anyway early in quarantine this is back when i was still running an adult game as well i was really excited about have you played lancer before i have unfortunately little experience of systems outside of fifth edition so lancer is this super duper cool um like mech rpg and I got into it. Uh, I bought it in, I think it was in one of those, um, one of those like tabletop game bundles um, in like 2020 or so. Um, it was super duper sick. Um, character customization is awesome. And it's, um, anyway, I don't know. I don't have enough good things to say about, about Lancer, but um, I was like, okay, I'll, let me, let's run an adult game of Lancer over the internet. And it was a fun experiment. Uh, I think the feedback that I got from the players that did show up was like being an adult and learning one tabletop game is hard enough. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to what I know, which is Dungeons and Dragons. So by the we started off with like four or five players, and by like the final week, it was it was me and one other person on the call. <laughs> um, and so yeah, so ever since then, the store has been kind of like we're not we're gonna stick to D and D because that's what you know that's what gets people in the door. So I have sometimes uh, when like only a couple of kids show up, usually, you know, five is our is our maximum. But there's been times when like only two of the kids have shown up. And that's when I will, you know, I'll be like, you know, we don't really have enough people to do our adventure. You know, the, so many of our of our comrades would be missing out. So maybe we can try this other RPG right now. You know, I'm <laughs> putting on my like puppy dog eyes to try and get kids to try something else out. <laughs> Yeah, and even for adults, it it like you mentioned, it, it can be really hard to get adults to kind of shift and try out a new system. To stick on Lancer for a second, uh, I've actually I've been a lifelong fan of Mobile Suit Gundam, and I was gonna I, okay, I was gonna say, I, are those are those uh, those Gunpla boxes behind you? 
They are. So okay, this is cool. all audio. <laughs> Nobody like has commented on any of the YouTube videos, but yes, I actually, and I've got uh, the, the HGUC Nightingale over on the other corner. Heck yeah. Oh but, my God. Uh, I, I've always loved the idea of actually using Gunpla as my minis to run a tabletop game. And I, I tried yeah. it out a few times, but one of the things that I ran up against was just finding a system that could balance out the crunch so that it would feel like you're not only a character, but you're within a machine that has complex parts and needs repairing and maintenance and advanced systems not bogging it down so much that, you know, you're not getting to play and have the cool story moments. So just in terms of the specifics, how crunchy is Lancer as a system? Lancer is very crunchy. Lancer is, um, so Lancer kind of separates the human scale stuff from the robot scale stuff um, in a way that I think is very smart. Human scale adventuring is very rules light and is very like narrative focused. You know, you will explain what is going on and sometimes the GM will call for a dice roll to like, you know, complicate things. And then conversely, the the robot scale stuff is basically like a tabletop war game. And what I like about that, so something that kind of like bothers, maybe bothers is the wrong word, but uh, you know, like power gaming, like optimize your character build is something that's always kind of like, I don't know, my first system was Dungeons and Dragons 3rd edition, so I did a lot of that back in the day, you know, like, oh, if I choose this feat at level 1, that gives me these options, and then I can prestige by the time I get to level 5. I'm kind of tired of that in a lot of fantasy settings, because it's like that problem that I feel of like that disconnect of like, I'm just a person, but I'm out of character making all of these choices to make my stats higher. All that makes so much sense when it's a robot that you're building. Like I want to, I want to optimize my build and that feels good to me when it's in Lancer because it is literally a robot that I'm getting inside of. I hope that I <laughs> made some kind of sense. Well, it does because I actually have had this ongoing debate with uh, my friend, Michael, who we did an episode of the podcast on optimization. And I think one of the points that he tries to make a lot is that if you identify what the optimal route is, you're really limiting the types of narratives that you can create by just choosing a set amount of mechanics that are better than others. And yes, optimization exists in fifth edition, but in my experience, it's nowhere near as bad as some of the testimonials I hear about third edition or uh, Pathfinder first edition. So yes, there's still optimal routes, but it, it's not like the very crunchy feet chaining of every other level you're building up to this this hugely powerful character but mm-hmm. I, I, Which do I would also be lying if I if I said that I didn't love that too in third edition I don't know I'm very nostalgic for third edition <laughs> yeah and you know I, I came onto the scene a little too a little too late I guess <laughs> to have some of those the, the memories of, of how the system kind of like has evolved over the additions but that makes total sense that narratively it would make sense especially like you know if you look at Gundam that kind of mech is in wartime so the the tone of the narrative is you can't really try out new things because everybody might die and there are some right. real consequences to that mm-hmm. whereas i guess if there was more of a sport thing like i don't know if you ever watched IGPX on uh oh, tsunami yeah it was like a it was a a mech show but they were racing um, so they had okay. these humanoid robots. There would be a battle lap, but then there's like a speed lap. And that sounds sick. 
Yeah, it was, it was a really good show, actually. But because it was more framed as a sport, like, you know, NASCAR with robots, it had a very different feel in how they would tune their individual machines. Just to dive a little bit deeper um, by asking a very broad question. What is it that you love most about TTRPGs? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think when I was just getting into game, when I was like 12 years old, um, I think it probably would have been, my answer would have been like, you know, the chance to make a whole world. Like, that's so cool that you can, you know, you're, you can use your imagination to create something from nothing. And I still, I still believe that. Like, I still, I still feel that way. But I think that nowadays as an old decrepit woman, um, my favorite thing is probably like the collaborative aspect of it. Basically, I want to do less. <laughs> so I've been gravitating more towards games that let everyone at the table kind of uh, take part in the, the storytelling. And I'm very strongly of the opinion that like, everyone at the table together is going to come up with something that is way cooler than anything that I can come up with alone. And so I've been, that's kind of like where I'm at right now. Like what is what is keeping me in love with tabletop games. To add in a comparison for like TV production, because that's one of the things I've been doing my my COVID pastime is listening to Office Ladies. That's why a TV show has a writer's room. So it's not just one writer trying to come up with everything. It's a, a collaborative effort of everybody bouncing ideas off of. Do you have a particular moment that you can think of maybe from a kid's game or maybe from an adult game that you ran where that collaboration really led to like a cool moment that you know couldn't have been done by a single person? Oh, geez. Um, so more recently, I've I introduced um, some of my friends. None of them had ever played a tabletop game before in their lives, but they were all um, members of like an improv group. So they were they were very, very good at, you know, they they were good at role playing, even though they they had never like, you know, played a game of, of D&D before. Because they're just used to like stepping into a character and like, you know, breathing life into it in the moment. Um, so I introduced them to role playing with, with Dungeon World, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game. I don't know if you're familiar with any of the Powered by the Apocalypse games. Um, it's, this is basically like what I want to play instead of D&D when I'm playing D&D. <laughs> uh, Dungeon World is like, it's, you know, it's fantasy, you're, you know, there's orcs and elves and all that good stuff. Um, but the, the Powered by the Apocalypse engine is a, a like, way of, you know, playing role-playing games where, um, the, the huge thing is that there's never, like, a binary pass-fail, uh, which is a huge part of D&D. &D. Uh, you know, D&D, &D, when you get to combat especially, is very much like, you know, I roll a dice, uh, I either hit the monster or... I missed the monster, um, and then that's the end of my that's the end of my action. So, powered by the apocalypse, games are all about like uh, you're gonna roll some dice, and there is a like complete success where you get exactly what you want, and there is also a partial success where you get what you want, but um, you know at some cost. Everyone at the table is encouraged to be very like broad with what those actions mean. Um, so things get like really dynamic, really fast. Basically every, every encounter in, in uh, dungeon world becomes this like little movie sequence that is like very memorable, a lot more memorable, I think, than you know, your standard, like 20 foot by 30 foot room with enemies in it. I feel like the more strict rules of dungeons and dragons can sometimes be an inhibitor to cool things happening. Um, there's so many times when 
a kid especially will have some like off the wall, incredibly creative idea. And there's another kid at the table who like knows the rules really well. So it's like, kid, I'm so sorry. I would love to let this silly thing happen that you're very excited about. But there's a kid over here who's going to get upset if you know, you technically, that is both a uh, an action and a bonus action, and you've already used your item interaction for the turn, so that's the end of your turn right now, actually. Well, you bring up an interesting point about Powered by the Apocalypse and just how the engine doesn't have as many restrictions because it doesn't get as specific. How much experience do you have with the fate system? Uh, none. Um, I have, like, thumbed through the book a couple of times, and every time I look at it, I'm like, this is cool, I should try this out, and then I haven't. <laughs> Well, even even thumbing through the book, you've done more than I have. I just have talked to a lot of people. <laughs> How similar do you feel Powered by the Apocalypse is to Fate? Um, I don't, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in, in Fate, obviously. I know that Fate has a certain number of successes, I think. You're like rolling dice and trying to find successes versus, like pluses versus minuses, I think. Uh, I know that in powered by the apocalypse games generally and dungeon world specifically which is the only one that i've really spent that much time with the the gm is like encouraged to do as like as little as possible basically <laughs> like the gm is there to provide stakes and one of the core tenets of what you do as a gm is like feel, like be a fan of the characters and fill their lives with adventure and apart from that you're just going to let the characters be the characters and you're going to put up roadblocks but let them be kind of the in the driver's seat for a lot of the time. That's actually very powerful advice that I wish was part of D&D's known culture because a lot of times, especially when I've worked with a lot of different GMs, both as a player and a, and a kind of a, in a peer relationship, one of the things that we can run up against is the idea of the GM almost being the game show host where it's almost like all attention is on them. This is my world. This is my plot. Yes, you are characters that are in it. Yes, I like when you do cool things and surprise me. But really, it's kind of like I'm the one that's in the spotlight emceeing everything. Whereas mm -hmm. the approach of being more of the, the term I've been using lately, and I, I don't know if it's completely accurate, is like an editor where if you watch a movie, no one walks out of a Marvel movie going, wow, man, the person who put in that jump cut they really brought <laughs> right. the emotional continuity of this scene together. But the editing is so important. How scenes connect together, um, even little things like which shots can display which character is talking to who can have such a powerful effect on the story. And even more so, what ends up getting removed from the film so that scenes don't drag on too long or anything. This idea that the GM should do as little as possible to get the most out of their players and be their players' biggest fans. That's, that's really profound. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in Arc 3 of Advantage, a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. 
Find us in your podcast app. So speaking of GMing, you know, it, it's a much different job than being a player. So I'm curious, when you got into TCRPGs, I think you mentioned you were 12. Did you start as a GM or did you start as a player in somebody else's game? Uh, I started as the as the GM. This is <laughs> so the the origin, the Karina origin story is um, as at a kid's birthday party, but it was one of those parties where like the kid wants it to be like a cool party. I was at this party with my friend, and it was a it was a much cooler scene than either of us felt comfortable being at. So we were just like standing in the corner, not really knowing what to do with ourselves. And uh, do you know the cartoon show Recess? <laughs> Uh, there's an episode where TJ breaks his arm, and so he can't he can't play outside for recess. So he has to do inside recess, and he meets like the nerd group who always stay inside, and they play some you know D and D with the serial numbers filed off type of type of game. Um, and I remember seeing that episode and being like, "That's so cool! I want to do that for real." <laughs> um, so we're at this at this event that we're just like, Ugh, "I don't like this. Uh, people are scary." Um, and just started like you know making up stuff, uh, just basically to, like make my friend laugh. I was also, I was 12, so it was like, you're a chicken who farts or whatever. Um, and you're in a dungeon and there's a door to the left and there's a, a shadow demon or whatever, you know? And, you know, what do you do? And then, you know, my friend is like, oh, I fart on the demon and like, oh, you did it. Anyway, so all of that was just to, you know, to entertain ourselves and to entertain my friend. And I think that from there, um, I started getting interested in, like, oh, I could actually play this game like for real instead of just kind of like making it up as I went along. So I think I've always been the GM, not because I feel like I, basically I think I'm a GM because I think I'm a bad player <laughs> is what I would say. Well, that's certainly an interesting perspective. Um, <laughs> how often have you found yourself in the player seat of somebody else's game? God, uh, not very often at all. Though like the last time I've been playing in a, in a, a fifth edition game. Uh, run by one of my friends and yeah it's uh it's it's hard it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to be a player <laughs> I never know what did I always feel like I'm like not role-playing uh when I'm a player like I, I never feel like I can I always feel very like distant from my character and I wonder if that's like why I feel more comfortable in the in the DM chair because I'm always like what would my character do and I'm always like I don't know she would stand there and be quiet <laughs> but that's not fun <laughs> Yeah, I, I do wonder how much of that separation of character from player you naturally create as a habit because you're so used to switching between uh, NPCs right. as characters as a GM. Mm -hmm. and it's just what your normal mode is. Um, yeah. In that campaign, uh, what class are you playing? Uh, I'm playing a monk, um, a Herengon monk. The one where you get a JoJo stand. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. The uh, the way of the astral self. That's what it is. Are you enjoying playing at least the mechanics of it? Um, <laughs> I'm I'm enjoying role playing with my friends. I'm enjoying you know telling a story with my friends. I think the times where we get into combat are kind of like the most. This is through no fault of it. This is not me. I'm not I'm not throwing shade at any of my friends. My friends are all wonderful, but I think that. Combat and D&D is kind of a slog for me to get through, uh, just to think about, because it's so much of just like, <sighs> I don't know, the, your, the possibility space like closes down so much when you're, when you're like in combat, 
to me anyway. I'm sure there are people who disagree with that, but um, yeah, I feel like it's just a, a whole, um, like the whole world of role-playing kind of narrows down to just like, here are the seven actions you can take right now. No, I completely understand. Um, I mean, that's part of the double-edged sword, right? It's it's streamlined, so it's easy to understand, but there's only so many dynamic choices that you can make, and there's only so much support the system affords you to be able to try something creative, like you mentioned earlier. So you did mention that you have a few different groups going at the same time right now, right? What is it that you're currently working on to level up your game? Yeah, I think the thing that I think I'm weakest at, well, ending things uh, in a general sense, but the, you know, the the confrontation with like the main villain is something that I think I always really struggle with. Uh, so I've been trying to make those feel more meaningful for the, for the players. Um, and that is tricky for a couple of reasons. First and foremost being like striking the balance of running games with kids. Like, how do I make this person threatening and evil while also <laughs> keeping it like like G or PG appropriate <laughs> and also not feel like a, a total pushover too. Uh, I hate the cartoon villain that's like always just a huge like buffoon and is always messing things up. Like I was never scared of those when I was a kid. So I want to make like a villain that actually feels like they can mess things up if they, um, you know, if things go awry. But I've found often that kids really want to talk to the villain or like figure out like what their whole plot is. And I am very much a person that will come up with a kind of a vague plan for where to go and then, you know, figure out the rest as I'm running the game. So often it'll get to be like, it's the last week and why is this villain doing this thing? Uh, <laughs> I guess I have two hours to figure it out. Um, but then when a kid wants to be like, okay, we have you beaten now, tell me your whole backstory. <laughs> um, sometimes I need to come up with something very quickly. So basically I've just been trying to think of ways to make those experiences more meaningful and make the encounter with the, you know, the person pulling the strings, if there is a person pulling the strings, feel more weighty and less just like, I don't know, he's a necromancer. Necromancer's gonna necromance. Well, actually, speaking of that, are there certain templates that you tend to like more than others or have tried out? So like, for example, you could have a villain that's like a death knight, you know, real tanky bruiser type, which is going to play differently than a necromancer or a spellcaster or even a political advisor. Is there one of those archetypes that you feel yourself drawn to? I think a, a magical magical foe is usually easier to run um, because it's easier to justify them, you know, summoning in backup. Because another thing that is tricky with D&D is when you have like the one big boss. Um, if it's just like a guy, um, then, you know, he's going to get taken out in a hit or two. From the paladin uh, who has saved all of their spell slots and they're going to burn everything on the biggest divine smite in the universe and just, you know, drop a nuclear bomb on this this necromancer so being able to justify like and here's my skeleton army i you know i love a good skeleton army uh <laughs> i think my my favorite my favorite like look of a villain is like a you know a um a skeleton in a robe i don't know do kids think that's scary nowadays i don't think they do but i think they're cool i think skeletons are cool <laughs> Well, and especially working with kids, it does give you a little bit of at least a technical respect for something like Disney, 
that's trying to figure out how do you strike that balance between having it be a threatening thing but not overwhelming um and skeletons are a neat example because i i actually had this epiphany um earlier on with this podcast which is you know people don't feel bad like killing zombies because it's not like you know, they, they shouldn't exist to begin with. They're undead. Um, You know, in the 80s, all of the cartoons, they were destroying robots, not people. Yes. You can do mm-hmm. whatever you want, dismantling a robot or a skeleton. It gets real dark mm-hmm. when it's just Steve minion number two. <laughs> like, so. Yes. Yeah. Especially working with, I mean, you know, even when I'm not, I think I, think I still do tend to gravitate towards that type of enemy. I mean, for a lot of reasons, right? It's easy for the group of uh, goblins that are uh, that are attacking the village. It's really easy for that to get into some gross, uh, you know, like real world, like racist politics, that type of thing. So, yeah, I think that early in in my time working with kids, it was like, you know what? It is so much easier for the big bad boss to be a kind of like more existential threat or or a like a creature that does not exist in reality you know this is i am the spirit of uh you know despair itself uh we can all get behind wanting to to take that person out as opposed to you know i'm an orc and you know there is a there's hundreds of years of writing on why orcs are the way that they are and not all of it is kind to people so i am curious Sounds like D&D isn't the system that you've fallen most in love with, but it is the one that you run out of necessity. Is that an accurate summation? Yeah. So have you been keeping up with the newest playtest material of one D&D? No, I, every once in a while, I will jump into the, do you know Giant in the Playground? Every once, that was like the forum that I was on all the time when I was a teenager. Every once in a while, I'll dip back in there and see like what the, what the the forumites are thinking of one D and D because they'll do like a little breakdown after every new material gets gets put out, and I take what they say on there with a grain of salt because they are like they were old fogies when I was getting into D and D, which is like fifteen years ago at this point. So they're like you know they're like super you know they're like first edition. They're does anyone even say grognard anymore? I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but that's what that's what they are. <laughs> So they're all very negative. Um, so I know that the the old heads don't like 1D&D. And I know that as soon as it becomes the thing, we're going to be adopting it. So I kind of don't really have an opinion about it at all. Fifth edition isn't my favorite game, but that's the game that I play because because you got to you got to run it. So as soon as whatever whatever it's called, or as soon as 1D&D comes out, I know that I'll be running it. So I'm kind of just like consigned to that at this point but um i don't know is there is there cool stuff in it i know there's animal people which i'm into oh well they took them out already <laughs> but <laughs> they took out yeah. the animal people oh my god I i'm actually game. all right so i don't know what what i'm stepping into here i actually am cool with it because they had this specific species ability that tied them to the divine so you couldn't just be like a cat person. You had to be right. a cat person that could also cast thaumaturgy and have angel yeah. wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was lame. I I'm very I'm very pro animal people. I'm very anti angel people. <laughs> I don't like I don't like Asimars. I don't like any of that stuff. <laughs> so let's say Wizards of the Coast. You know, after it's done sending out its Pinkerton agents, um, calls you up, Karen, uh-huh. and says. <laughs> 
Listen, Jeremy Crawford is in the hospital. This is a pretend scenario. We need you to lead the design team on fixing fifth edition. What are some things that you might suggest to them? Oh my God. Um, Bring back Thaco. Uh, No, just kidding. I think that I have no idea how to answer this question. I don't know, because I think, I kind of think fifth edition is, you know, for as much bad as I am on fifth edition, it kind of feels like it's in a pretty like stable place to me, like from my perspective anyway, like it has a pretty dedicated fan base and like the people who like it really like it kind of seems like D&D is as big as it has ever been in the history of the world right now. So like, I don't think there's anything that I could say that would improve things at, at Wizards of the Coast. Because what I would say is like, let's forget everything and make a new a new tabletop game. And we're going to invent a new die. It's a 30-sided die. I don't know. If you could pick a system and you knew people would sign up for it. So mm-hmm. you don't have to mm-hmm. worry about D&D's brand recognition. Right. Um, what would be the system that you would want to run for mm-hmm. your kids' summer camps? So I would say not necessarily the exact game of Dungeon World, but something similar to Dungeon World would be wonderful to run. Basically, I would want a system that is not as um, like solved and solvable as Dungeons and Dragons is. And when I say that, I mean like the kids who have, like I said, the kids who have read every single book a zillion million times, they know the right builds and they know how to min-max their characters to the, the nth degree. And it's always a tough time, like convincing them that this is a game about storytelling and that it doesn't actually matter if your character is any good at what they do, because, you know, we're going to we're going to have fun regardless. So what I love about Dungeon World and games like it is the focus on like you are not you are not here to like demonstrate competency in character building. Um, you are here to, to sit at this table and, and tell a story with your with your friends. Um, so that would definitely be something I would focus on, um, because I think that, like we said before, the possibility of space of, D- of D&D can sometimes be narrowed by the concreteness of its, of its, like, specifics. So a game like Dungeon World, uh, would be awesome for that. This is also a, uh, just a totally unrelated plug, but on one of those days when I had, like, a light number of kids and I got to, like, run something... Uh, I ran this game that is out digitally. Uh, I don't think there's a physical edition yet, but it's getting printed called Animon Story, which is like um, a Pokemon slash Digimon-esque role-playing game. And that was actually, that one was like for me. Uh, (laughs) That was like, I'm going to convince these kids to play this for two hours. They're going to, you know, they got to do something for two hours. So they're going to, you know, I'm going to subject them to this. but they were like, they were surprisingly high on that. And I think that's because, you know, kids, kids like Pokemon, as it turns out, newsflash. Um, but that game was super fun too. And it was also, I think, good for children in that um, it was more focused on the collaborative storytelling aspect of it and less on a, like, let's, let's get your sick elite gamer build. So, you know, feel free to add your own thoughts to it. Um, I find that fifth edition's core mechanics are the D20 check and mm-hmm. the action, bonus action, movement, action economy of combat. So those are like the real core mechanics that facilitate all of the rest of the specific rules that come up situationally. 
do you have particular core mechanics that you've discovered playing different TTRPGs that you think would, if you were to create a custom system, would best facilitate the kind of storytelling that you would like out of your players? I'm kind of of two minds about it because I I like tactical games. So my like dream combat system would probably be something like like a Final Fantasy Tactics or something like that. Like I've always wanted like combat facing to matter, like what direction you like end the turn in to matter. <laughs> um, I'm gonna interrupt so for a cool. second. Yeah, no, yeah, because go um, when I introduced combat facing from the Dungeon Master's Guide into my mm. latest Fifth Edition game, it made it run so much smoother and so much better because really? oh, now you could establish line of sight. So it's like, mm. can the enemy actually see you? And yeah. because you get advantage if you get to their back arc, all of a sudden, like it was, was super clear when rogue sneak attacks would go off because they got right. behind the person. And uh, it suddenly now the tanks could act as positional distraction so mm -hmm. that, you know, if you you can turn around to not get advantage on you, but now you're uh, you don't have your weapon on the correct side to opportunity attack. So it made it a little bit crunchier, but it actually added to a lot of the storytelling when I did it. So I fully 100% back. That's, that's super cool. <laughs> I, that's, I mean, that's, that's the thing though, is that I think all that stuff is super duper cool. But at the same time, I think when I think about the types of games that I want to run, because that sounds super cool if it's a video game and everything is like all of the um, like bookkeeping is taken care of for me by a computer when I'm like running a game and I have to actually deal with the the realities of thinking on your feet and keeping track of multiple things, I'm just not that smart. So <laughs> so a a like very, 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 very rules light system for for combat is I think what would be the the, the ideal system for me to run in reality. And that's the thing where like, you know, announce your intentions. There's not even like discrete moves, right? Um, Dungeon World is really cool because it encourages players to not to choose their move. There, there are like moves, um, you know, there's, um, what is it? Act under pressure, um, like hack and slash is one of the moves and that's like your main attack. But you're encouraged not to do like, I'm gonna take the hack and slash action. You're encouraged to describe what your character is doing. Um, you know, I want, to, I want to run up to the ogre and stab him with my dagger. And then now as the GM, it's my turn to say, okay, well, there are, you know, there's a line of archers that are between you and, you know, that are to the side. So, you know, the, the flagstones are also kind of uneven between you and this ogre. So based on that information, here's the dice roll that you're going to make to, to determine, you know, how successful you are at that. And I think that really encourages more details to become relevant in, in combat, which like are the little like grace notes that make stories interesting like slipping on uneven flagstones or or um you know like the sun getting in your eyes when you're trying to like line up a shot those are the things that i almost never think about when i'm designing a combat encounter in like a very crunchy game but they're the things that you're encouraged to think about and so they come way more naturally when you're in a more narrative system so yeah so i think that as much as i want to like get like as crunchy as possible. I want every, you know, like roll for the tension in your shoulder as you pull back the, you know, your, your arrow, whatever. Um, I think in practice, what I would want is actually the exact opposite of that. A very, like very narrative focused system. So you mentioned having a background with third edition D&D &D 
Have you had any experience with Pathfinder second edition? No, um, I know that there's the, I forgot what the website is, but you can like look at all the, the rules on the internet. So I've like, I've poked around a little bit. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I think I'm just, maybe I'm running into that, you know, I'm running out of bandwidth for learning another new system. Um, so yeah, I've heard that it's not like first edition Pathfinder, which means that it's not like third edition Dungeons and Dragons. So I haven't run it myself either. I did find that trying to poke around the website was it was it was just runes to me. I had no idea what was going on. But when I actually purchased the core rulebook and started from the beginning and started moving my way through, all of a sudden everything made sense. I do know that whereas D and D has uh, the movement action bonus action system, they have just a three action economy where like an attack move uh, a five foot step which is just a disengage all those costs in action and you can mix into them spells usually cost two actions and the more attacks you make on your turn uh there's like a minus five and a minus 10 penalty that get added for each subsequent attack which is supposed to encourage you to like move attack and then do something else with your third action i see um so I haven't had any experience with it to be able to report on it. I was just curious because one of the YouTubers I follow is the rules lawyer, um, Ronald, the rules lawyer. And one of the claims that he made is that because Pathfinder second edition actually has more rules, it can remind players how to role play because they have specific things that they're excited to use. And I've seen it both ways. I think it's like a personality thing. So in your experience with adults, so kids, it sounds like it like inhibits their creativity because they want to play by all of the rules a lot of the time. For adults, do you find that having more rules helps or you do you think it still gets in the way? Hmm. I think that it's totally dependent on on the group that you're with. Like if your group is is a bunch of, you know, tactics heads, then yes, they're going to they're going to love doing that. I, th I think that the inclusion of more rules and more crunch is usually more opportunities to say no to stuff. There's a third edition uh, a resource book called The Complete Scoundrel. Um, everything was like the complete blank for those. So Complete Warrior is like, oh, more classes for, you know, for fighting. Um, so there's one called The Complete Scoundrel. And I remember thinking that it was the coolest thing in the universe whenever I first got it when I was 14. Uh, because it introduced this new system called skill tricks. Um, and so you could like spend, when you level up, you get skill points and you can spend those to increase your skills. Um, but instead you could spend your skill points on these skill tricks. And it was like, um, an example of a skill trick was like, you can wedge yourself up between two walls, like your feet on either side of the corner of a wall so that you can, you know, have both hands free while you're climbing to throw daggers or something like that. So when I was looking at it in the bookstore, I was like, heck yeah, this is so sick. I love this. This is gonna, you know, this is going to make our games so much cooler and more cinematic. But in practice, if no one has that skill trick to wedge yourself up in the wall to free your hands up, then anyone at any time can say, I want to wedge myself up in the wall so I can free my hands up to throw daggers while I'm climbing on the wall. And as a DM, you can be like, cool, that sounds awesome. Uh, let's, you know, let's decide how difficult that is. Let's move on. Let's go for it. But as soon as that, as soon as one player has that skill trick, all of a sudden, the next player that wants to do that, the DM can be like, well, you don't have the skill trick. So it would be unfair if I let you do it, but not 
you know, not Steven when he spent the two skill points. So in my experience, those like extra little crunchy rules are always like more opportunities to say like, well, you can't do that because there's a rule about that. Um, so I am very anti lots and lots and lots of rules. I highly agree. I remember talking with one of my friends about dual wielding and I, I made something about like drawing two swords at the same time. And his counter was, well, what about the dual wielder feat? Like, why would you ever take it then? And so for a little while, I was definitely on the, well, you know, the dual wielder feat. So obviously this matters until eventually I'm like, well, how about I just make an agreement with my players that the dual wielder feat is bad and we just won't play with it. So everybody can draw their weapons with, with both arms. And again, I'm playing with adults who study personal growth and development. So we have a lot of agreements over, you know, what's fair, what's not fair. Mm -hmm. not having to factor in the maturity of child players trying to not only learn the rules of the game but the soft rules of the social contract of the table well karina it is about that time before we close our conversation do you have any closing thoughts indie games are good everyone should play more indie games um play dnd if you have to Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragonmind is brought to you by Incendium RPGs. For more content by us, check out our YouTube channel with the link in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmorepodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Sugar, spice, and everything dice. These were the ingredients selected to create the most badass ladies in all of Arcandrum each treated to a vision of the possible destruction that could befall the world if they did not stop it. Thus, the dream team was born. Crit Like a Girl is a cinematic podcast featuring the adventures of four strong women and an adorable little owl. Join us every other Monday, and come see how we, Crit Like a Girl, 